Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. I'm Chris. And we are track walking. Tonight, we have somebody who is parked at a rest area um, because he's a high-class individual. And uh, that is Chris Taylor of Chris Taylor Racing. How you doing, Chris? Oh, pretty good. If you hear a knock at the door, uh, we might have to pause this for a minute. <laughs> Hopefully not like... Well, I, I think best case scenario would be a cop just checking in. I was going to say, the question is, which side of the Texas-Louisiana border are you on, and uh, which state troopers do you want to talk to? <laughs> the great state of Texas side. Uh, oh, you'll be fine, though. Yeah. Oh, yeah. got see, Texas plates, so it shouldn't bother me. I know just enough about Texas to know that you calling it a great state is doing it a great disservice because it is a great republic is it not right <laughs> if you could see me right now i would be slightly rolling my eyes but that's because i'm not a native texan so. you should be yeah you texans are something else yeah so so chris we we kind of figure that you and seth being both living in texas running in the same like general automotive circle that you guys had to have crossed paths or like know people who know people what part of texas are you in uh so i was born and raised in austin my shops uh just outside the city limits across the street from circuit americas so and i've mostly done road racing okay. um we had a like little foray into rally cross and we did uh uh, some of the first rally crosses, well, we did the first rally crosses in Austin and some of the first in Texas. I just, my brain just figured out why, how I know you. I don't actually know you. I my saw the light friend, bulb go off. My friend, Brian DeFries had like the world's worst RSX rally car. Yeah. That lived, that had something to do with your shop and then got dragged out of a field. And then I had to work on it for a while. Okay. Yeah. So that was when we, when back when we were doing that and, uh, you know, looking at doing like stage rally stuff, this guy brought us this car that he bought as like ready to go rally. And it showed up like, didn't have, like, it didn't have a spill kit, didn't have, you know, like the basic stuff needed to go rally. And somebody had like, tried to do some lightning i guess on the car with a hacksaw or something it's like the wiring harness was a nightmare and the dude that bought it <clears throat> you know was it just wrote a pretty big check for it and so he was mad the dude that sold it was like wow you know i sold it race ready and you know it just got into this like finger pointing deal and so it pretty much just sat and rotted um until i guess the guy finally came and got it and then it went back to his house, sat there for a couple of years, and that was when Brian dug it out. So by the time we got it, it wouldn't roll anymore. We had to we had to hook it to a tree and winch it off the trailer because the like the brake rotors were frozen. So it we just Jesus. dragged it backward, dragged it back off the trailer, and then had to start the whole process by freeing up the wheels. It was it was yeah. utterly horrible. But oh, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. So when Scott told me we were interviewing you, I was like, I know that name. And it, and it took me just there a second is. to piece it together. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember I saw that car up at winding road and there was like the ghost outline of my logo <laughs> on the, my old, my original logo on the fender. Yep. And it was like, that thing is still haunting me. Uh, hey, good news you know, for all of us. It just went out to Washington state to become an endurance race car or something. Yes. So yeah, yeah. No, I remember. So I think when I saw it at winding road was after y'all got it running. Yep. And Brian was gonna, I guess, do GLTC with it, or maybe, maybe he didn't know what he wanted to do with it, but that was what he ended up doing. He did. Yep. And I saw it at Coda and I was like, Hey, I know this car. And so that's when I met Brian. Oh, it was like, because of know, that car? Because of that car. And I'm like, just so you know, this car is cursed. <laughs> and he's like, oh, it's been great. And then I think he did like three races, and then it like broke in the fourth and he DNF'd or something like that. Yeah, yeah it dropped, that, a, dropped a valve, I think. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he basically brought a rally cross car, put different tires on it, and ran a GLTC weekend at Coda. <laughs> the first, well, the first weekend, uh, GLTC ran there. That's right. Yeah. 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 That car was woefully under, under prepped for that class. Right. <laughs> but he had a, he had a good time. It's his first taste. Yeah. yeah. He's Brian. Brian's one of those kind of guys that like, he can have what I would call like an awful, like want to quit racing kind of weekend. And he's having a good time. Yeah. Yeah, Brian has sunshine follows that man around. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how. So what what were you doing playing with uh with rally cars and stuff? Um kinda it was one of those like natural evolution things, I guess. So um SEC just started kind of just started doing the rally cross stuff. It was at least new. And you know, my shop had 17 acres. So it was something that was fun, you know, with cars and like beaters that we could do, you know, pretty much any time we wanted. And then on weekends, you know, charge whatever it was, 25 bucks to, to go hoon around in the dirt. And, uh, you know, just from there meeting people, got into the stage rally stuff and then uh, started doing, you know, a little bit of that. It never really took off, you know, because at the time. The only stage rally that was in Texas was Paris, and that was like a five or six hour drive. And then the next closest would have been Hundred Acre Wood, which was you know a twelve hour tow. Yeah. So it was kind of a tough, tough sell. And then at about that same time, that was two thousand six, two thousand seven. Then we finally started getting some racetracks. Um, you know, Harris Hill opened up, and uh, then obviously a few years later, Coda. So you know we kind of got back to what I grew up doing and what we started my dad and I, um, with, you know, wheel to wheel cars. But so, so you, you almost like landed with rally. So where, what, what were you raised doing? What kind of wheel to wheel stuff? Yeah. So my parents actually met through the SCCA, um, nice. and they did another, another love story made through the SCCA. Yeah, right. You know, and they would do. Was she, like, pro- was she protesting him? No, that was later. That was later. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so, the, so when they met, so my mom had moved to Austin from rural Ohio in uh, 
like late sixties and, um, a gal that she worked with was involved in the club and invited her out to, I think it was a race weekend back when they had like the aqua festival or maybe it wasn't, it might've been later, uh, but invited her out to a race basically to meet guys. <laughs> and, uh, she ended up, you know, from that meeting my dad and my dad was a road racer, raced to uh, Elva Courier in the sixties and then was part of a crew in Austin that had basically a bunch of old British cars, you know, that at the time were near showroom and, uh, you know, they got, they got married and did autocross back when, you know, the SCCA actually put on autocrosses in Austin. And, uh, you know, my dad never really raced again until after I came along, Mm. but, uh, was always, he was one of the, you know, crew guys for local teams and whatnot. And she ended up becoming a steward was one of the first, uh, female stewards in the SCCA with a friend of hers out of Houston. And uh, so she was a steward for about 20 years. And then, uh, more recently, like, and why I say more recently, 10, 15 years ago, started doing registration and, uh, just finally kind of retired from all that. So she comes and helps me with, you know, hospitality lunches, getting drinks, all that kind of stuff. Now has a lot more fun doing that. (laughs) I've got all the questions now. First of all, how much of a badass is your mother? Uh, she's pretty, she's pretty, pretty badass. Cause I, uh, I've got to imagine like that scene in the sixties and seventies in road racing. Oh yeah. When women had their role and it was typically didn't involve much clothes, um, just like around paddock, but yeah. for her to become a steward at that stage, like that's pretty awesome. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, there was. There was times where they would go to racetracks and there would be signs that, that said no tits in the pits. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and she's sitting there, you know, an official for SECA. Holy crap. And, uh, so there was a lot of, you know, a lot of friction early on. And, I mean, there were even – it's funny that, you know, listening to some of the stories that these old-timers tell and, and you know, like our friend Susan would tell um, about – some of these guys that kind of resisted them coming on board back then who like were still around in the nineties and early two thousands. And, you know, it's the kind of, kind of eye opening that, you know, now they're, now they're friendly and there was a time where they weren't. Yeah. How but. far things can change. <laughs> Interesting. Well, so your mom was a bit of a strong, I I've got to imagine like, a strong person to be able to deal with that kind of animosity and just keep doing it anyway. Oh yeah. Well, and plus to be, you know, to be a steward, right? Because basically the only interaction that you have with somebody in that position is when, when you've screwed up or you're otherwise in trouble. So it doesn't, you know, as a driver anyway, it doesn't really lead to many friendships. (laughs) That's fair. But, but, you know, she like people I meet now, uh, and, like another kind of funny story of, of women in racing and everything is uh, Leanne Falk, who helps me a lot now with uh, coaching and uh, driving, it was protested by some guys. And my mom was on the SOM, the panel basically that had to disqualify her. And 
So it's like when we started talking, she's like, is Paula Taylor your mother? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, well, she disqualified me in the 90s at some <laughs> race. And it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I had nothing but, to do with that. <laughs> yeah. You know, but same, you know, same deal. Like, no, no animosity from her on that because it was, you know, just one of those deals. But, uh, uh, yeah, lots of that, lots of that kind of small world stuff Damn. going on too. And you said that your your dad played with you said British cars. What what are we talking? Are we talking minis, Triumphs? Yeah, mostly mostly like MGs. Um, yeah. He was. I mean, I remember growing up riding like on the package shelf of an MGB. Um, but the race car, you know, the race car that he had that he ran in the '60s and had up until. I think the early nineties, uh, was the Elva Courier, which is, uh, pretty much, uh, British Miata. So it was a hmm. tube frame fiberglass body had an MGB motor and I think gearbox and a triumph, uh, front suspension and rear suspension. I've, so his, I don't think I've old, ever seen one of those. Yeah. The, like the, so the most famous example of that was, uh, that was what Mark Donahue started racing. Okay. Uh, and so there was a couple of different versions. So the one my dad had was uh, what they call a Mark IV. So it actually had independent rear suspension rather than a beam axle. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he had that car up until early 90s, sold it to a guy, changed hands. And uh, uh, it actually won the national championship runoffs in, I think, 2007. Um, <laughs> Dang, that's it, that is awesome. Yeah, you know, nothing nothing original left on it, right? Because the dude basically rebuilt it from the ground up. It had a carbon body and everything else. But it had, you know, it had a number stamped somewhere on it that was the same one that was on my dad's car. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's still a 50-year-old chassis at that point. At, right. At least. Yeah. Jeez, that's cool. Yeah. So were you like one of the, the pit babies who was like walking around in between races and like sitting on oh, yeah. car seats and wheels and stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, I mean, I would, I would, uh, wash the cars with a bottle of Windex and a rag. Um, yep. you know, I volunteered. I mean, I remember selling t-shirts at races. Um, you know, I worked every specialty I could pretty much in the SCCA and, uh, you know, just, you know, like I said, grew up around it. It was, it was fun because back then, I mean, there were like roving gangs of kids in the paddock and, uh, you know, it's like, you'd be excited to get there just to hang out with the other, other kids and, and do kid stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it's kind of funny watching the, uh, Dale jr. Ghost tracks of TWS. Right. And the only thing left is like the front straight stuff. And they're talking about the tunnel under the track. And I remember getting in trouble for jumping the fence and running through that tunnel when I was like eleven or twelve years old. Yeah. That tunnel and, uh, looks that tunnel looks so haunted though. It's oh yeah. Terrifying. It was pretty like and that's what it amazes it, it amazes me it hasn't collapsed because you know, this was twenty years ago and it was sketchy back then. And for reference, Scott, this is like a one man sized tunnel that yeah. when you're when you're in the infield there's there's literally like a playpen fence around it and then it just yeah. goes down into the ground in this haunted 
wet, horrible thing that ran under the track and under the the grandstands and everything else. Is it just for drainage? No, No, for for people, because you would go from from the timing and scoring up in the tower behind the grandstands, and then a person could run under there and then go to the infield. But it was a tunnel just meant for people to run through. It was hard pass. Yeah, it was the scariest thing ever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like I say, it was it was creepy twenty years ago, so I can't even imagine now. (laughs) So what? So it was like being able to be in the pits and just hang out with the other kids. Like it just felt felt like a place that you could be and actually like fit in as a kid. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, like I said, we would, there were, and it's, it's so weird to me now because you go to a race and you, you hardly ever see any kids. And I grew up like, I didn't really have any friends in school because we didn't share the same interests. I mean, I was wearing racing t-shirts, you know, drawing race cars, stuff like that. And you get to the track and like, that's all the weird kids wearing the race t-shirts and drawing cars in their notebooks, you know? Yeah. You, and you found so like people. I, yeah. So like that was, you know, it wasn't a vacation to me. That was like, that was home, you know? Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, so it is kind of sad now that, that it's not, it's not like it used to be right. Because, you know, it used to be the whole family would go racing and now it's like dad's escape from the family. You know what I mean? It's, mm. it's to the point where, you know, if I'm in a track and I see kids, it's like, Oh wow. Somebody brought their kids. That's so cool. You know? But then I remember like being a kid and especially if you're the only kid at something like that, it's gotta be pretty boring. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a bummer, but that's just, you know, kind of how racing in general has changed in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. We've been, we've been seeing more and more kids at grid life events, uh, in the last couple of years. And yeah. we're, we're kind of continuing to try to try to strengthen that. I mean, that's the reason, you know, Becky and I got the whole van and trailer combo right. specifically was so that, you know, my son could come along and we could have like a home base where we could stay because, you yeah. know, tent, tent camping with, with your kid is, it, it it's not great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited about doing this grid life race in uh, February at Coda because yeah. I've been, you know, been watching that for a while and it seems like a pretty cool concept and, you know, just everything, everything about it is kind of what I feel like is missing from everything from pro racing to club racing, you know. Yeah, for sure. Are you, you racing GLTC? That's the plan, yeah. What are you bringing? Uh, it's uh, one of my buddies uh, in Miata Champ Cars. Ooh, okay. So, you know, stock two-liter, five-speed, yep. uh, Bilstein B14s with some springs on it, and then some nine lives arrow. Okay, sweet. You what, know. Which tires did you choose? I, that's still up in the air. Okay. Um, Something you, you can know, get. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Yep. We, you know, we run hand kooks on it in the endurance stuff, but I don't think that'll cut it for there. So sure. Yeah, it's yeah, it won't quite be like a full grid life event because it's 
primarily super lap battle, but there's enough right. grid life people running around there that it'll at least be a, a little bit of a taste, I think, for you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm most I'm like thing I'm most curious about is the you know, the actual like racing side of it, because sure. you know, that's that's my thing, right? If it's not if it's not fun racing, then it's still like a destination for the event, but you know, I'm a race car driver, so that's <laughs> that's always priority one yeah that's fair uh, you know so it's kind of it's kind of cool like that's that was how it all kind of came to be was you know we drove that car at laguna and it was a freaking rocket ship and we're looking at you know the street tire thing with grid life and looking at lap times like what that car when they ran it at coda before all the changes and it's like you know it won't be it's not going to be a winner but the fact that I've got so many laps there and I know that platform, it's like, it could be, you know, a little upsetting for some guys in like fifth or 10th place for us to show up with that thing, you know, cause it's all rusty. <laughs> yeah. You know, all different color body paint. I mean, it's a champ car, so, you know, it's not all, it's, it's, not all pretty, it's seen champ car things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it sounds like so far minimum car count sounds like 25, um, could have as many as 35, but it's going to be somewhere in there. And I have been informed as long as the, uh, borders remain as they are, the Canadian is coming as well. Yay. So he is, uh, gonna unleash all of his pent up, uh, yeah. I was pent up crap on everyone. That's yeah. the guy with the with the four cylinder Mustang, right? No, it's uh, TSX. The the TSX that ran so two, two years last ago. year when we were at Coda. Two yeah, years. last year when we were at Coda, he was out running okay. in front. Um, James Houghton. Yep. Yeah, he and yeah, a lot. Yeah, a lot more people are gonna come down there, so I think the field will be good. Um, Brian is was messaging us moments before we got on about all the little things he was taking out of his car because he's finally listening to me and it's yeah. going ma- to make her car, car lighter. Right he's, on. he's, he's telling me, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to take the ABS module out, but I'm going to leave the wiring. And I'm like, yeah, because it's going to go back to being a road car, right? Right. <laughs> take some tin snips, man. Get it out of there. Yeah. Oh, that'll be that'll be fun for you then. Yeah, yeah, uh, it should be. Like I said, it should be. You know, it's not going to be a winner, but as long as I got some guys to race with, I'll be happy. Yeah. So your 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 dad raced, and your mom did all the stewarding stuff. How did you go from being like uh, r- the kid running around in a pack of other feral racing kids to being a guy driving a car? Uh. I mean, I guess it was, you know, obviously sort of a natural uh, thing to occur. But, you know, as, as early as I can remember, I was talking about, I, you know, when I, when I turn 18, I'm going to get this. When I turn 18, I want to race this. And then, you know, saw go-karts. It was like, oh, I want to go go-kart racing. And mom was like, yes, the last thing you're doing. And then we found uh, quarter midgets. And they're, you know, full roll cage, uh, pretty safe. And so it's like, what if, what if we get new quarter midgets, right? Even though it's all ovals, 
which my family wasn't, you know, oval people, but she was okay with that. So I was like, okay, we're going to do quarter midgets. And then kind of twist of fate, another small world thing. One of the other uh, SEC stewards had two sons that were a few years older than me, and he had two quarter midgets, a 15-foot box trailer, you know, two helmets, two suits, two of everything, and he just wanted to get rid of the whole package. And so uh, for I think that was my eighth birthday, that was my, you know, like kind of the the money that I'd saved up from past birthdays and, you know, a hefty contribution from the parents. That was that was my uh, birthday present. So when you so, were eight years old, you bought a whole race team? Yeah. Well, like I said, my <laughs> parents bought a race team, but it was, you know, under the guise that it was mine because I had a couple hundred bucks in a, you know, saving in a kid's savings account. Part part owner. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was the the real start. And uh, so it was pretty cool. The first uh, race day I had, you know, all of our local racing friends came. So I had like half little, you know, it's like a three row grandstand there at the at the quarter midget track and half of the grandstand was there to see me. And I think I was the, so when you start in quarter midgets, they have a novice class. And so they basically take the smallest motor, put a restricted plate in it. So you really can't get going fast enough to do any damage and let you kind of circulate. And uh, I was the only novice. So of course I won. So that was a pretty good debut and uh, had the biggest cheering section. And, uh, you know, was, hooked after that but uh so did that and then you know i think back then it was still yet to be 18 to race scca and thankfully before i made it there they lowered it to 16 so when i turned 16 is when uh when i started uh, road racing what was it that hooked you because i know especially when you've kind of been waiting in the wings for something for long enough, sometimes you can build it up into your head to be better and cooler than it actually is. So that by the time you get to go do the thing, it's not nearly as cool as you thought it might be. So what, what was it that actually lived up to the hype in your mind? That's a tough question. Thank you. I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, Sometimes I ask myself why I still drive when I have bad days and I, I don't know what it is, but there's, and I'm sure most people are like this, but there's just something, I don't know if it was born or bred or what, where I just, I like, I just like driving cars fast. I like going fast, mama. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't, I don't know, like if anything, I'd say it was just, it's, it's, it's so much in my blood that even through all the trials and tribulations, I always come back to it. Even, you know, even when I get tired of it after a while, but you know, it was just that. And I think too, a lot of it was the family aspect, right? Cause you know, I'm eight to 15 years old. I can't do any of this on my own. So it's, you know, vacation time with mom and dad. Um, it's, working on the cars with dad, um, you know, stuff like that, that, you know, I mean, 
like so i remember when i was a kid you know there were a bunch of bunch of kids in the quarter midget stuff that like they get out of the car and they go play football behind the trailers and i'd get out of the car and wipe it down you know clean the wheels stuff like that and kind of my dad's standing rule was if i wrecked it i had to fix it you know so he would buy the parts obviously he would make sure everything was tight (laughs) but i'd have to pull off the broken stuff and put the new stuff back on it and you know so then like as a result from that i really didn't tear too much stuff up yeah it creates creates a lot of mechanical empathy when you're the one who's got to fix it at the end of the day right and you know and i think to a certain extent that's that's kind of stayed with me you know through my whole life because like i've always been really good at enduros i don't you know don't tear too much stuff up uh and you know but it was it was almost fun getting to do that kind of stuff you know because it it got to got to a point with the quarter midgets where we were traveling and doing some of the bigger races and it wouldn't it wasn't uncommon for us to change a motor in between sessions um you know and it was like stuff like that you know i would be doing a lot of that work you know because if we're changing motors we've also got to do a gear change and some of this other stuff where you know i could be pulling a motor out and my dad's getting the motor ready to go back in Dang. and you know just stuff like that was always to me that was always fun yeah because like you said the other kids are you know playing something else right focus somewhere else after a race and maybe even before a race and stuff but you're sound like you were actually involved at all levels on mechanically driving setup repairs loading unloading yeah. i mean it sounded like you're it you were part owner i mean you were involved right. in everything <laughs> yeah it, you know and it's like it's funny you say that too just the evolution of all that is is it's wild to think about back then you know we would level the trailer, throw some bathroom scales in it, set the car on it and corner weight it, you know, before a big race or, or if we were making a big change and people would walk by like, what the heck are y'all doing? And now you go, I went to a quarter midget. They had one at uh Coda for the IndyCar race a couple of years ago. They were running them out in the parking lot. And oddly enough, there's quite a few folks from back when I was racing still around you know, manufacturers or, or kids that I raced with that have got kids running now and walking around the paddock there. It's like the same thing. Like this is nothing like when I was growing up because there's stacker rigs, yeah. you know, they've got whole platens for the cars. Like, you know, one kid's got three, four chassis there. You know I mean? It's just like mini pro racing. Yeah. And, it seems like the, the kids, who used to be in your shoes grew up and then they want to just kind of keep going. They don't want to like let the kids start where they are. Right. It, I, it's, I'm not describing this very well, but it's like, they want to keep progressing from when they were kids and not like allow their, like support their kids and learning and things like that. But, they want to provide all of their decades of wealth and experience to their kids who are just starting out. Oh yeah. 
and probably yeah. one to outdo the other uh, the other families too. Uh, definitely, and then you know, so many of them. Like, I mean, I remember racing some kids that had, you know, at the time it was like, oh, they got a lot of money, they've got you know, brand new chassis every year, yada yada yada, and those guys are all racing NASCAR now, you know, and so they're having kids, and you know, they want they want their kid to race, so it's like just a mini NASCAR team out there, you know, because I there, I remember the the last national championship race we did there was only one like freight liner in the whole paddock and it was for kyle chrysoloff whose dad was steve chrysoloff who's like somehow related to the george family that owns indianapolis mm. and kyle ended up winning the runoffs in a formula ford and going indycar and nascar racing and all kind of stuff too um and so now i think you know because of that that sort of that sort of attitude of if we dump a bunch of money in this, you know, the kids are going to go somewhere like kind of sparked this whole spending war thing, you know, because the go-kart races are just the same. Um, you know, we were at Homestead last weekend and they have a little go-kart track outside and you drive by there and it's there's as many freight liners in the paddock for that go-kart race and 18 wheelers as there are inside the track for you know seca and uh it's just uh you know what do you, what do you think what do you think we lose when stuff like that starts to happen because it it sounds like it can can legitimately maybe be a good thing for that one kid or those two kids who get to benefit from it. But like as a paddock, as a sport, what do you, what do you think we're, we're having to give up when Freightliners show up to, uh, to eight year olds races? We, we say as I'm sitting in a Freightliner and a rest stop. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, to me, it's the, it's that family aspect, right? Because, you know, when I was, when I was doing that, when we, when, when, when I grew up at SCCA races, you know, that, that, that stuff wasn't around and it was both of them, both series, both types was, you know, for, were truly for fun. And it's kind of gotten to the point where everything is, you know, for profit. And, you know, even like, to me, that's, it's kind of an across the board thing where it trickles down, you know, the pro racing stuff is all strictly for profit. So then, you know, that goes down into the levels below it and below that, you know, and I'm sure there's still some like local go-kart tracks where there's not all the big money stuff, but any of the touring, you know, stepping stone type series is all, you know, big dollars being spent. And, you know, that's, on the one hand, you know, as a business owner, I love it because that's paying my bills, right? But sure. as somebody that grew up around it, it's like, like I said earlier, it's like I go to these races and there's there's no kids, and it's like, who's gonna be who's gonna replace me in twenty thirty years if there's no kids running around the paddock getting hooked on this stuff? Yeah, that that fun and enjoyment is what hooks kids, and not the level of equipment that is provided to them. Right. Yeah, it's a hard one. <laughs> that's, that's, like I say, I'm torn, right? Because that's, you know, 
without without the way that racing has become, I don't have a job. Sure. And you know, I still get to go drive race cars. Maybe if I have some other job, but you know, I guess at the same time, it's also evolved to the point where I enjoy I enjoy doing this stuff too, right? Whether it's flying out to work at a pro race or driving the rig to a SCCA race in Florida with, you know, a bunch of my buddies joining me there. Cause that's, you know, I mean, I, that's, I still bring that vibe, I think to racing that, you know, everybody that whose car I haul to the track, you know, who rents a car from me, whatever it's, it's a family thing, right? Those are my, those are my friends. And, you know, so I'm, I guess I, as, as we're sitting here having this discussion, you know, I am trying to keep this going, but, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many other teams are doing that still. So for the listeners who don't know you or don't know what you do, what could you describe your shop? What, what would you say you do there? <laughs> well, Bill. Uh, thank you I'm glad, I'm glad you get the reference uh, so you know it's it's multifaceted but what it pretty much boils down to is we do arrive and drive race car services for primarily b-spec um, but anybody anybody that will put up with me and likewise I'll put up with them so I've got a couple of uh, SCC touring cars now, uh, a couple of Miatas, and uh, a couple of uh, old GT4 cars um, that I you know work on, store, prepare, maintain, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, we kind of, you know, when when my dad and I started this, essentially this business, Josh, almost twenty years ago we were kind of focused on RX-7s, spec RX-7s. And, you know, that class kind of dwindled. It never really died. But when Spec Miata came around, it kind of pushed that class out. And, you know, I, I wanted to jump into Spec Miata. My dad was like, you know, no, we just started doing this. You know, we're RX-7 guys. So, you know, when B-Spec kind of looked like it was not the same thing, not necessarily dead, but like it might have a future, I kind of hitched my wagon to that train and, you know, helped to build that class back up because, you know, I saw it as a truly entry-level class where you could go buy a street car, you know, put it together in your driveway, in your garage at home, and go race and not only go race, but be competitive. Yeah. Right. And so that's kind of the big difference in B spec versus spec Miata or, you know, any other like SCCA class is that the cost of, to just get the car on the track versus the cost to build a winning car is within a couple thousand dollars, you know? So if you get a donor really cheap and it's, uh, you know, not needing a whole bunch of mechanical stuff, you know, another like five grand, maybe you can be on track five to 10. 
So mm-hmm. you could be on track for anywhere from 10 to 13,000 where like a spec Miata, you can get on track for that same amount of money. Yeah. But you're like back marker seconds off the pace, right? You, you got nobody to race with. And then to get up to the front, you know, you've got to be spending 20, 30, 40,000. And, so you know, obviously there's guys doing it, right? Cause there's guys like me doing that, doing the same build and, and support and service stuff with spec Miata selling brand new builds for 55 plus. Um, but you know, and not to knock spec Miata, right. Cause they just had 80, 90 cars at Sebring. So obviously there's nothing wrong with that class, but it's kind of, you know, I was at the meeting when they proposed that as a class and it was, and it was, it's so funny because a lot of the wording and the concept is the exact same as B-Spec, right? We've got all these cars. Affordable racing. Yeah. They're affordable and there's a bunch of them already built and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. 20 years ago. Right. And, but it's just, it's not a entry level as far as cost is concerned. Sure. You know, it's a good place for these go-kart kids to get some seat time. But, uh, you know, to me, B-Spec is more for, and, it, and it's funny too, because for, for a while I was, you know, at 35, one of the youngest guys in the class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it was a lot of older guys and it was kind of the same thing. Like they didn't want to go spend that kind of money. They didn't want to have to corner balance the car every session and, you know, change this and that, you know, they want to show up with the car, drive all weekend, load it on the trailer and crack a beer and, you know, be done with it. And, you know, that was kind of my, my same concept of, of racing. Right. But, you know, what, what I wanted to bring to it was the professional support and service side versus just, you know, roll it out of a open trailer and, you know, go have fun. And, uh, the beauty of it is like, you know, people seem to, to want that because, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to beat, you know, what we offer for the price. You know, I mean, the next, the next cheapest option, you're still spending five to 10 grand a weekend. And this almost sounds like the ethic of somebody who was raised in the paddock <laughs> had to take care of cars by not by himself, but had to take care of cars in all aspects and appreciated the fun and enjoyment that racing brought. Right. It like are you like B spec Santa Claus? You're just like spreading the joy to all the boys and girls? Uh you know, I try to, right? Um I mean while people aren't hitting your truck. Yeah. <laughs> you want to tell that story real quick? You can uh, you can you can leave the profanity out of it. Yeah, that's gonna be tough. You know me. Uh, yeah. So, I you know I do try because I do I still love the class. I love most of the people in it, and it's it's still you know it's still growing. But we're having you know we're having some teething pains right now. But uh, yes, yeah, so, so I got the homestead last week and got there at. 2.30 in the morning because every rest stop, truck stop, Walmart, Home Depot I could find on the way down to Miami 
was crammed, either crammed full or down some little rickety road that I didn't want to drive down. So at a certain point, it's like, oh, I'm two hours from the track. I'm just going to iron butt it all, all the way down there. So get there, and there's actually a couple other guys uh, waiting to go in, and there's a security guard opens the gate. So we go park, and, you know, I'm kind of surprised pulling in like there's not any trailers. But it's 2.30 in the morning. I don't care. I crawl on back, go to sleep, wake up, and uh, there's, you know, trucks rolling in. So I fire my truck up, and one of the paddock marshals, who's a guy I've known for quite a few years, been around forever, kind of comes up and is giving me a hard time. You know, what are you doing over here? Where do you think you're going? And I said, oh, I don't know. I heard all these trucks moving. I just fired it up, and and I noticed when I woke up, there's a parking lot kind of across the way with all the trucks. <laughs> so, you know, it looks like I'm trying to, like, sneak in and jump the line and all this stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, he asked me where Homestead's a pretty tight paddock. If you've never been there, it's, uh, I'm going to say, like, mile and a quarter over. So not a whole lot of room. And which is why I wanted to get there early. And, uh, but pretty much everybody else waiting either had a garage or wanted to be in the like paved interior paddock. And there's this back road that runs along the RV spots, which is a nice place to park because you just throw an electrical cord over the fence and plug it in. So I told him that's where I wanted to go. And he was like, okay. And uh, he said, don't go anywhere. I'll let you know when you can go in. That's perfect, you know. So I'm enjoying my breakfast and uh, he comes back maybe 10, 15 minutes later and says, you know, go ahead and go on in. And there's one rig going by and then a pretty big gap and then like a pickup pulling a fifth wheel. So I'm like, okay, I'll get behind this rig. So I pull out, you got to sign the waiver, go inside, you go through, there's a tunnel, not as creepy as a TWS tunnel. And so to go to the main paddock, you basically just keep following the road and it dumps you into the main paddock. To go where I want to go, about halfway down, you hang a left. So the guy in front of me hangs left. And I'm thinking, you know, oh, he's going on the opposite end. Because if you go where I want to go, go down, you can get to like the far end of the garages versus the near end. Okay. So done, done, I don't think anything of it. And we go down a little way, and all of a sudden, he just, like, stops, like, jumps on the brakes. So I stop. And I'm a good – I don't I don't have a dash cam, and obviously, it's at this point that, like, the shit hits the fan, so I don't remember. But I am a pretty good ways behind him. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this guy's going to back up at me. And so as I'd stopped, I'd kind of moved over a little bit, so that I would show up in his mirrors instead of being like sure. dead even behind him. Well, old dude just starts backing up. And, you know, I'm trying to get mine into reverse, honking the air horn. There's Goodyear and Hoosier tire services on either side of this little road. So, of course, I start honking the air horn, and they all look up. And uh, dude just doesn't stop. Till he hits the truck and you know i'm cursing my eating auto shift that won't go into reverse if i could have got it in reverse you know who knows what would have happened i'd have backed into somebody else probably probably but um so 
he hits me. There's like steam coming out, you know, all kinds of stuff. I'm going, oh, Jesus, you know, this guy's just destroyed my truck. And uh, he jumps out and I'm expecting, you know, I'm expecting some kind of like, you know, what are you doing behind me? Kind of, you know, some kind of thing like that, but figuring that it's, you know, it's all going to end up working out. And the dude just starts hollering and talking a bunch of dumb stuff, right? So it doesn't go well from there. So and I like, grabbed my baseball bat. Yeah. It's like, why don't you just get out of my way so I can go get parked before I melt this engine down that you just poked a hole in my radiator, right? So, and of course he won't move. So I end up having to go around and I get parked. And then from there, it just escalates, right? So cops end up coming. They file a police report. Uh, which wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a bad police report. It was just a accident for insurance deal. Sure. But of course the like, the like paddock rumors, you know, run rampant. And uh, <laughs> obviously the track was none too happy about that because we really weren't even supposed to go inside. You know, they were doing us a solid by letting us in. Yeah. So the, you know, once the track finds out about that, maybe two more rigs get in. And they shut everything down. They're like, no. And uh, they were, so they were supposed to let everybody in at like three o'clock was what they, you know, what they had said when registration opened. So they ended up not letting anybody until five. So it's Florida, right? Five sunsets at five fifteen. So all these guys that had to sit outside all day are having to load up, you know, unload, set up canopies, all this stuff in pitch black dark. So, and that was what really like, upset me more than anything like you yeah. know trucks fixed right but you know everybody all the all the guys like me having to sit out there all friggin' day with their you know sitting on their hands basically and uh so my truck is, ended up only getting uh you know dinged up front end and it poked a hole in the ac condenser which you know i don't need right now <laughs> yeah and uh but that their truck man it like sheared the ball off the hitch and bunch of bunch of damage but thankfully they were able to get the lift gate open to get the cars out yeah because um, that what i when it first happened i was like oh man like that lift gate's been pretty good i don't know if they're gonna be able to open that thing and the you know of course the team owner is a buddy of mine like i've known him for years so it was just like you know could this have been anybody else right yeah so. well yeah that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't the best start to the weekend, but right. But yeah, how, cool. how'd you guys do? Uh, well, how, uh, how many cars did you bring down? What? So I had uh, three customer cars, and then a couple of guys brought their own. That just did the the Sebring stop. Um, so the cool thing about that trip is, you know, first of all, you're in Florida for two weeks in January, which for most of us is much nicer weather than wherever we're coming from. Yes. And then you get two races back to back. So like transport cost, all that, you know, it's only basically for somebody that wants to do Sebring with me to add on homesteads, only another 300 bucks. So you get two weekends essentially for the price of one. Yeah. And then like last year uh, we had four and everybody stayed down there for a week. Cause you know, that was actually, it's funny being down there, all the memories popping up when they were skiing down the Coda Hill. So, you know, it snowed oh, in Texas. Oh, that's right. That was last year. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't the big disastrous freeze. 
it was the like what what you northerners would call a dusting and uh that was all the like coda social media stuff that they were posting with all the all the snowmen and everything yeah i forgot about so, that you know, yeah so we were uh colin my uh my buddy and i were sitting in key west drinking uh, something with rum in it looking at all these pictures of snow back home you know and it was 70 degrees 70 80 degrees down there um so this year it was a little bit we had one less uh car and then a couple of guys joined us at sebring so we ended up uh, homestead i finished i think second on saturday and fourth on sunday and then carrie uh one of my customers finished i think third third or fourth on saturday and then he was fifth on sunday but uh nice. It's so Carrie's a, a kind of a cool story. Um, he'd always wanted to race, and uh, he's—I guess he just turned fifty. And so it's like driving race cars has been on his bucket list since he was a young guy. And he finally got to the point where he was like, "I'm knocking that off the to-do list." So uh, he ended up getting referred to me by Jason Hart, and uh, so he, you know, kind of. It's like one of those random emails you get and you're kind of like, I don't know if this guy is legit. And, uh, but he's just big time, you know, race fan interested in it. And so last year was his first year racing. So he was kind of just going through the motions, um, you know, learning as much as he could, as quick as he could. And then this year it's, you know, he wants to finish on a podium and, and win a race and he's gonna, um, so at Sebring, so at Homestead, he got, I think it was three seconds faster than his time last year. And Homestead's not a driver's track at all. So <laughs> not as much improvement to be made there. Mm. But at Sebring, he was, I think, six seconds faster. And our, my, my best time versus his best time was about a second apart. Nice. So that's pretty good for a guy you know, only been doing this for basically a year and two months. Um, so, uh, I'm excited to see how he progresses the rest of the year. And it was, it was kind of fun having a smaller crowd because I was able to do a lot of one-on-one, you know, coaching data, video, all that with him. Yeah. Why? Well, um, so I know you guys do Mazda twos primarily, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So funny, like, funny story is you know i started with the fiestas okay and now it's just like it looks like a mazda 2 shop but i don't have other than you know we kind of perfected that platform i don't have any real reason to to focus on those um but it's for the class it's one of the cheaper cars to get into um mazda supports us really well both with parts and contingency money mm-hmm. and you know when we when we first started messing with them a couple of years ago they were like universally easy to find cheap donors yada 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 yeah. um but so i started with the fiesta because i pretty much dug two of them out of a storage unit and then uh, i obviously started you know my history with b-spec goes back to the pro days and there was a local guy I had one that i would uh you know fix when he ran it in a wall and stuff like that so i've had hands on them 
for many, many years. But uh, basically, a buddy of mine sold me a Mazda, you know, too cheap to pass up. And so that's when I kind of transferred over to the Mazdas. And, you know, so naturally, I got the Fiestas, started racing them, Ford canceled their contingency. Mm. So it's like, well, why am I trying to win races when I don't, you know, get anything out of it but a trophy when I could get a Mazda, which is essentially the same car same as Same platform, right? yeah. And, uh, you know, if I win a race, I get 500 bucks, you know. So that was sort of the, the impetus for that change. And then, you know, because of that, like, for a while, you know, nobody really ran the Mazdas because they were thought of as uncompetitive. And after my experience with the Fiesta, it's like, okay, it's a different motor and transmission, same setup, you know, same concept, everything. Why, you know, why, why is it that slow? So I bought that car. First weekend out, uh, finished second one day, won the other. Second weekend out, same story, but with a track record. And, you know, by the end of the year, basically Mazda paid for that car because <laughs> I won a championship with that car, which came with a thousand bucks at the end of the year. So I think I made like 6,500 bucks and paid seven for the car. That's awesome. So it's like, you know, now I had to spend. <laughs> that I don't, doesn't I don't happen anymore. Much I had to spend, yeah. Don't ask me how much I had to spend to win that money, but you know, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Always, Uh, always have to pay to it. And, and what I, what I appreciate even in watching the runoffs in Indy is the, the livery that you guys choose to run on all your cars. Yeah. You, uh, you, you basically take one of the famous cars from days of thunder and, you put the livery on a Mazda too. Right. Yeah. So a couple of the guys said, you know, man, we're running Indy for the runoffs. How cool would it be if we all had like throwback schemes? And, you know, so a bunch of guys uh, opted for like IndyCar type schemes and which was hard. You know, one of Kent, one of my guys wanted to do one and it's just, it's hard to translate you know, a little cigar with wings on it onto yeah. a big hatchback. And <laughs> a lot you know, of real estate on that car. Yeah. You know, and there weren't many, like there weren't many five car indie teams except for like Penske. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, you know, for a multi-car team, like the only thing we can really do justice is days of thunder. And of course, you know, I was a huge days of thunder fan. I had all the car, you know, I had the cars had all this stuff. So it's like, you know, this is kind of a no brainer. And, uh, they all turned out, I think really well. Cause we had, the the pink and white super slow. And then, uh, the car that actually carries driving now is the city Chevrolet. And, and I, the thing that I was proud of more than delivery was like transferring the logos and stuff. So it's all like, nice. you know, my logo, but in the, Hardy's font. Yeah. And then it was, instead of City Chevrolet, it's a big like Mazda M and then it says, you know, Chris Taylor Racing Services on it. <laughs> That's but awesome. uh, you know, they were all like everybody loved, you know, our schemes because even uh, one of the kids that runs with me, he, he had a red car and there weren't any red movie cars, but when you watch the movie, some of the racing scenes, there was the like nineteen ninety Bill Elliott. Coors car, which was red 
with the white and gold. And so it's like, oh, this is easy. So since he's at the time 17, it's like, ah, maybe we just don't put Coors on it. So I found a font that's pretty close, and we just put Charlie on the side of it, right? Yeah. But the, and so the first race for that one was Colorado. <laughs> so everybody else there loved that car. Nice. Because <laughs> it was like immediately, you know, it had the mountain logo yep. behind it. So immediately goes focus. And, uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I had I'd had kind of my own livery for the cars before, but I've pretty much abandoned all that, and now we're just all days of thunder. I I think it's phenomenal. <laughs> do you, Do you find it difficult, like on a on a given race weekend, like the one that you just had? Do you find it difficult to not only like drive and get into the headspace you need to be? Um, to try to go fast and help take care of however many cars and provide some coaching. I mean, that sounds like a handful. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. So the, the biggest factor in that is that, you know, I've got some of the best, I mean, I've got the best crew in the SEC as far as I'm concerned. Um, so Colin Oker's, has been helping me coming on two years now. And he's another rally guy, you know, another small world kind of situation. But basically he's he's the real MVP. Um, so he's doing all the tire pressures. He's doing all the fueling, uh, any changes, you know. And because of his background, he's, you know, if I'm like, man, I don't really like the car in this corner, you know, or these corners or whatever, you know, what, what do you think we can do? And it's, he's a real quiet guy, but it's like, he's always got some kind of little wisdom for me. And, you know, so that he takes off a bunch of the load as far as watching the cars. And, you know, my big thing always, whenever anybody would help me is there's the only two rules that we don't run out of fuel and we don't let wheels fall off. Right. And, so that's about all gotta, that can go wrong in B spec, right? Right. And that's, that's like the two in for any like team owner or driver or anything like that's the two most embarrassing things that can happen. So, you know, in, in, I think I've been doing this three years, we've run out of fuel like two or three times maybe. And most of those were, you know, strategic errors, not like, Oh, Hey, we forgot to put any fuel in your car. Just didn't put uh, in quite enough. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so he takes a huge amount of that off of my mind. And then, uh, when we've got a bunch of guys, then Leanne Falk, who I mentioned earlier, will come help with a lot of the data and coaching. And it's sort of the same deal. Like if we've got four cars and she comes out, like I don't touch a laptop cause she'll go download all the data, download all the video. Uh, and then. You know, she's an old professional racer, worked for everybody. Uh, so she was like on the Pinsky Marlboro program that turned into Verizon. So, I mean, she's got more seat time than any 10 guys combined at, at most racetracks. Jeez. And so she can actually coach the guys where like, like at the runoffs, you know, we had 12 cars. I had two to three uh, mechanics and 
So then Leanne and I were kind of working with everybody, but you know, it was, it was enough. So we you know, enough hands on deck basically that, that we could both turn our brains off and go drive while still given that, that level of service to everybody. And then like at the runoffs too, like Charlie uh, Valdez kind of stepped up and helped coach some of the guys also. Um, Cause he's a, uh, you know, He's one of those young phenoms. It's just like, oh, you just go flat through there, you know. And it's something that anybody over the age of 30 is like, but if I go flat through there, I'm going to die. And he's 17, so, you know, it's not going to happen. Yeah, he's um, yeah, he's, he's not going to die. Right. And uh, so uh, so he was a big help, too, just just kind of helping, helping coach some of the guys that, you know, because we had a bunch of guys that had, like, carry that had never – never been to an event of that level and, you know, haven't had to learn a bunch of new tracks. And of course, none of us had been to Indy, right? I mean, there was some guys had done Indy, I think it was 2017. They had their runoffs there, but it's, you know, it's kind of an exclusive place. So not very many people have too many laps there. And uh, he was on his sim doing it, you know, and all this stuff. So it's, uh, you know, nice to have the team that I've got basically, where you know I don't I don't have to watch over guys and I don't have to juggle nearly as much as if I was doing it by myself or or you know trying to do it by myself. Yeah, yeah, I would and imagine then, that would be uh too too much for one person to be able to <laughs> take on. Yeah, but I, you know I don't know it's it's one of those like uh, I've always had a thing and I I don't know I guess it started way with the quarter midgets where we would race in the evenings and, you know, if we had rain delays or something like that, I mean, there were times that our feature race was at one o'clock in the morning. And so I, from an early age, just kind of got used to, you know, nodding off on grid and I still do it. Like I did it this weekend. (laughs) Uh, You know, so I, I guess that sort of is that time, sitting there belted and suited up, you know, now that you got a Hans, you can kind of just lean into the Hans and close your eyes and take a little power nap. And yeah, that's sort of my, it's an okay. awesome headrest. Yeah. You know, and so that's kind of, uh, you know, all the, all the wheels are torqued, all the cars are fueled power nap time. You know, let's go, let's go win some trophies. Hmm. What's your, What's your experience been in racing B-Spec versus, say, like Champ Car or any other series? Like, is it is it more competitive? Is it harder to win? Is it different? Like, what I, – I guess a better question would be, like, what are the skills that are different between one race series to another? Yeah. That is, like, B-Spec versus Champ Car endurance or – you know, whatever else. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I actually, we were talking this weekend and, uh, so I had two, two buddies of mine from Austin area that are getting into B spec and they were, they were kind of asking the same thing. Like, what's the, what's the strategy here? And I said, you know, for a sprint race, the strategy in these cars is really sort of that of an endurance race because, you're not going to win the you're not going to win the race in the first turn. 
you're not going to win the race in the first five laps, but you can't lose touch of that leader or the lead pack or whatever. But, you know, we had this experience at Indy where we had 61 cars and 61 guys thought they were going to win the runoffs the first lap. Yeah. And not, not in a, and I don't mean that in like a destruction derby kind of way. I mean, it was really for that many cars and half of which half of the drivers was their first runoffs appearance, you know, and it was, it was a really clean race, but it was just not, there was no strategy. I mean, it was guys would not like me, for example, nobody would work with me except for like one guy that's kind of almost been my nemesis all year. Like we always seem to have friction and not get along, but then we go out and have some amazing races and the runoffs was one. And this, you know, it's like, I'm literally sitting there going, this is who's pushing me, this guy. And we like, we had a beer after the race and it was like, that was the most fun. You know, we had so much fun at Homestead. We had so much fun here. That was the most fun race all year. Right. But you know, it was like, it was like every man for himself. And so it was just utter chaos where, you know, and, and that was sort of the, the idea behind having 10 cars out of my group was we would have people to work with. And it was, there was just so many cars we could never, like, I couldn't help Charlie because he was five cars up. Zach couldn't help me because he was five cars back. And it was so, it just ended up being this just like frustrating, kind of frustrating, super high stress race. But, you know, we had a blast. So, you know, to me, it's more of a, the cars are so slow that you automatically really? go two to three seconds a lap. Yeah. They're really slow. Yeah. You know. And you go any track with a straightaway longer than 100 feet, you're going to go two to three seconds a lap faster bump drafting. Yeah. And nobody, so at Indy, nobody would bump draft. But, you know, everywhere we go, it's like insane how much speed you pick up just off like a good drafting partner. So, and then again, because the cars are so slow, they are more punishing than even a spec Miata or, you know, any other sort of momentum car Yeah. as far as scrubbing speed or over slowing or anything like that, where, you know, I'm really convinced that if more of these uh, young guys got into it and do really well, they'll be unstoppable just because those mainly those two things, but all of the stuff that you learn in a B-spec car will make you an amazing driver and everything else. Yeah. We, um, we did an episode last year sometime talking about the virtues of driving tragically slow cars. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, to me, it teaches a lot of those fundamental skills in an environment that, you know, like in a spec Miata, you can still run decent laps and not be a perfect driver where B spec, you're not going to be anywhere near, you know, you, you might be able to like get a good draft and get a one lucky lap, but you can't do consistently good laps without, you know, being an extremely good driver. And then, like I said, too, it, it teaches a lot of that, you know, that strategy stuff where, okay, you might be faster than this guy 
in one or two corners, but he's got more motor. So you got to just sort of tuck behind him, draft him, and then on the last lap, you know, dive bomb him into seven or whatever it is. Um, because all the cars, you know, all the cars make power and make lap time in different ways. So there's this, you know, delicate balance of, okay, if I'm in a Mazda 2, I got to be behind a Sonic because if I'm in front of the Sonic, if he does bump draft me, he's going to give me a concussion when he hits me <laughs> or, you know, or he'll just pull out and drive around me. Sure. But because it punches such a big hole in the air, you know, even though I'm down a couple horsepower, I can stay in his draft and then, you know, pick my corner to, to pass him and then just hope I can hang on for the win. Right. Yeah. And so there's, you know, some of that same strategy in an endurance race, but, you know, even like it's funny doing, you know, lemons races 10, 15 years ago and doing like champ car races. Now, you know, back then the strategy was just survive, right? If you made it to the end, you were going to do well. And now, I mean, you really have to watch like not necessarily lap times, but average lap times. And, you know, the fuel mileage is just champ car WRL, all of that you know, fuel mileage is what's winning all these races, if you ask me. But that combination of, okay, if the, if, if a pro, you know, young kid, fearless can do a 146 in this car, you know, how close to that can you average over an hour and a half stint versus like running that 146, but then you do a bunch of laps in a 156 because you can't figure out how to get by this guy. And, you know, that was kind of like, kind of drove that point home when we did Laguna in Colin's car. And like, I'm pretty good at handling traffic. So I'd never been there and my laps weren't very fast, but they were all within a couple of seconds. And so when I got out of the car, we were like top three overall. (laughs) And, you know, everybody else on the team was the same, you know, amazing drivers, like, two rallycross guys and then another like autocross, you know, champ car type guy, you know, so we were all just super consistent and all seeing the track for the first time. So like the first couple laps were painfully slow. And then as we kind of figured out, you know, then, then the, the Delta would get less and less. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of, that's kind of the fun of, of those types of racing is, you know, figuring out not necessarily how to do the perfect lap, but how to do the perfect average, you know, and handle traffic. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's something that I've always loved. And in B-Spec, like that goes back to that. So B-Spec, you're always racing faster cars. Sometimes you're racing faster cars with slower drivers. And all, like all the time when we do these, you know, regular, so the runoffs, we've got our own run group. Every other race weekend, we're with somebody else. Sure. So it's, you know, managing those fast guys by or passing cars that run an identical lap time but have twice the horsepower and, you know, getting through cleanly. But then, you know, there's always, for me, the back of my mind is like, 
can I get by this guy in this corner and make sure the dude behind me does it, right? So kind of using him as a pick. Yep. And, you know, we did that this weekend a lot because we were with the prod cars. So, you know, huge mix of car speeds and driver talent. And uh, so in the rain, I didn't need a draft. So there was a lot of, on Sunday, you know, I would kind of send it in the corner a little bit and scare the old timer in the prod car, but not scare them so much that they get out of everybody else's way, right? Because then I could get a little bit of a gap and start running down the next guy. Um, and so that's, you know, that's one that's to kind of, re- you know, you'll never really, I don't think, hone that skill in a spec where if you do a lot of endurance racing, you know, you're getting past, what, 20, 30 times a lap probably. Yeah, yeah traffic <laughs> uh, management is yeah. a big deal. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's one of the one of the fun things about that. And I wish, you know, I wish we could still – I guess we could still run the B-Specs in Champ Car, but it was, it was fun running them in WRL against, you know, TCR and GT4 cars. <laughs> right. <laughs> What's uh, I? I think you should really try to get out to a grid life weekend and bring something that you can come play in Sunday Cup with. Yeah, I think that would be good fun. I, you know, so like, if you'd asked me that a couple of months ago, I'd say I don't race clocks. Sure. And, but I'm every day I'm getting more and more interested in doing something like that. Um, the like the killer for me is. It's like the old stage rally issue, right? Aside from Coda, like what's the next nearest event? Maybe Road Atlanta? No, they don't go there anymore. Um, AMP we're doing in March. Okay. Uh, Heartland is in October. Yeah. And then PPIR, I want to say, is August. Okay. I think those are going to be the, the closest ones to you. The next... The next one's what mid Ohio probably. Yeah, yeah, it's the same problem stage rally has. If you live in Texas, <laughs> you're just everything is so far away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you know we'll see how this Coda weekend goes with the GLTC thing, and uh, you know, like I say, it may be that may be moving up in my priority list. So you know, depending on schedule, because uh, I've got a this year we'll be juggling. The SCCA schedule, a couple of Trans Am races probably, and then I'll be back with Skip Barber working on their uh, SRO Honda team. Nice. So I think I'd figured out how many weekends I was at a track last year, and I didn't write it down, and I forgot, but I, I don't think I'm exaggerating or far off when I say it's like 30 to 40. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then we're, what, two weeks into, three weeks into January, and I've already been at the track twice. So, yeah, it'll be, be more of the same this year. Strong start. <laughs> yeah. Well, where can where can people follow you, learn more about what you do and all that stuff? Uh, yes, yeah, so I've got a website that's mostly now, like, part sales, but I'm kind of my... 2022 goal is to post more stories and content at chrisTaylorRacing.com. 
and then Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I think is all racer Chris Taylor or something like that. Okay. Well, uh, we'll get to the links from you and be sure to put those up in the, uh, the show notes. We are at Trackwalking Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Trackwalking Chats is the Facebook group. Um, reach out to us. We haven't asked for reviews lately. Um, if you would, rate us, review us. It does help um, people find the show and searchability and whatnot. So we'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be shameless and ask for that because we, we need things too. And that's good. So... Thanks for joining us. For the three of us, I'm Scott. I'm Seth. And I'm Chris. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.